This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. With schools across all four home nations due to close on Monday the 19th of September, as part of the plans for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, much of this week's news is set to focus on issues away from reflections and remembrance of the UK's longest serving monarch. In Scotland, the largest teaching union has voted to go on strike in a dispute over pay. The Educational Institute of Scotland, known as EIS, rejected a 5% pay offer following a ballot. The EIS announced on Friday the 16th of September that 91% of the responses to the consultative ballot had voted in favour of strike action. 94% of votes were also in favour of rejecting the 5% pay offer. 78% of all union members responded to the ballot. The union, which represents 8 out of 10 Scottish teachers, will reject the offer next week and move to a statutory ballot on strike action. EIS General Secretary said, Teachers have simply had enough of the year-on-year struggle to achieve a fair pay settlement. She went on to say that 5% offer represents a real-terms cut of 7%. Scottish teachers have previously been offered rises of 2% and 3.5% before the offer of 5%. The AIS said teachers' request for 10% was fair and reasonable. The Times has released its 2023 Good University Guide, with many media outlets from across the home nations reporting on the standings. With student debt now averaging around £50,000, it's more important than ever that young people research and find the right institution and course for them. The list includes profiles of 135 universities across Britain, and uses data published by institutions in the last two months. The University of Bath is named University of the Year. Whilst it ranks 8th in the overall list, up from 9th in 2021, it won the award due to its strength across the board. Exeter was runner-up in this category, with Birmingham, Oxford and Surrey also shortlisted. Whilst Oxford misses out on the University of the Year award, it has again topped the league table, a position it has held for the past 12 years. St Andrews in Scotland was ranked second. Durham University was named Sports University of the Year thanks to its collegiate structure which encourages high levels of participation. The full list can be found by subscribing to the Times website. And finally, 250 former students at Bedford's Training College were awarded honorary degrees and reunited by the University of Bedfordshire this week. The graduates, now in their 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, attended the college between 1940 and 1978. The college, known in later years as the Bedford College of Physical Education, held a special ceremonies to celebrate sport and lifelong learning through physical activity. Most of the recipients have taught PE in schools, universities and local communities over the decades. In a week where service to others has been at the forefront of reflections about Her Majesty the Queen, the college has recognised the service and dedication of its former students. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about a social media post we regularly see. It goes something like this. I'm trying to show my class the reach of social media. Please reply with where you are in the world. 
Personally, I love this post, and to honor it, I'm going to try it myself with a slight twist. I'm going to use the Insert 3D Map in Excel to show all of the places in the reply on a map of the world. It's so easy to do. You simply put a title in a new column, for example, Towns, and then add all of the place names below. Finally, click Insert and choose 3D Map. If it's the first time you're using it, you'll need to follow a few prompts to get it working, but you'll be greeted with a 3D map of the world with a little square pinning all of the places you typed in. If you don't use Excel, don't worry. You can do the same in Google Maps by clicking on directions and adding every place as a waypoint on a journey. This is a great way of showing pupils the reach of social media posts in a way that they can visualize. I'll post the final map next week so you can use it with your pupils and save you a job. So what are you waiting for? Reply to my tweet or tell at TT Radio 2022 where you you are and tag me in at Steve Woods one to one. Next week, I'll post the results. TZ Radio 2022. Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Today's show, I am talking about cold calling. We are looking at the pros and cons of cold calling. We are looking at how useful it may or may not be as a technique. Um, it's something that I know is quite divisive in the teaching community. Um, and I'm also aware that I have the uh, what we might call the wrong point of view, because I personally am against cold calling. Um, in the classroom. So I will be interested to see whether I am able to change my own mind today uh, as I explore cold calling with you. That's the plan from a very chilly Gloucestershire. We are at nine degrees right now. And uh, that is the, uh, the signal that autumn is well and truly here. Of course, it's that funny transitional stage of autumn where it can be very difficult to figure out um, exactly what you are having to wear. So I had the day off of school yesterday. I was very lucky, but I did have to um, to pop in. Um, I had a meeting and as a result of that meeting, I needed to go into school and just talk to a couple of teachers. So I was, because I was at home, I was just in, in my casual clothes. I was in a, a hoodie um, and I knew it was cold. So as I went out to school, I put my coat on. But by the time I had rushed to school and made my uh, made my 10 minute journey, I realized that I was too hot and I was, in fact, dripping in sweat by the time I got there. So it's um, yeah, it's one of those times where it can be very, very difficult to figure out exactly what we are having to wear in order to be comfortable. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. I personally am one of those people, and I, I discussed this uh, very early on in the show's uh, in the show's career, when we were going through the heat wave in England, I am absolutely one of those people that would rather be too, um, too cold than too warm, because my theory is you can always uh, add layers to warm yourself up, but it can be much, much more difficult to um, to cool yourself down. So I personally would rather put some extra layers on and make sure that I am plenty warm rather than not have enough to wear. So we are currently still in our state of national mourning here in the UK. 
uh, it's quite an interesting time I am finding. And the queue is what is currently in the news. Now, while the queue might sound like some kind of Saturday tea time um, game show, it is, in fact, a literal queue. You know, the Brits are famous for queuing. It is a literal queue that we have um, as we try and or as people want to see Her Majesty the Queen lying in state. Now, the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport uh, did an update at 8am today, the 17th of September, where they say the queue is currently in Southwark Park and wait times are at least 24 hours. So people are now having to queue and not having to queue, wanting to queue. That uh, makes it even better. Wanting to queue um, for 24 hours in order to, to get in, in order to see the Queen lying in state. Um, there is a suggestion by Chris Ship from ITV. Uh, Chris Ship is ITV's uh, royal editor, that they will actually need to close the queue um, to new arrivals on Sunday morning in order for the last mourners to pass through Westminster Hall, where the Queen is lying in state, before 6.30am on Monday. And Monday, of course, is the state funeral. So it's, um, I think it speaks a lot to the British consciousness that people are willing to queue for the Queen, uh, that people want to queue for the Queen, and that they are willing to do so for such a long time. You know, the queue is 24 hours long. We have people standing there right now. Um, I read, although I haven't been able to fact check this, so I'm not I'm not claiming it as fact. Um, I read that you're not allowed to take a seat into the queue. Um, you know, so no camping chairs, nothing like that. I read that um, you're not allowed to have your space held for you. Um, clearly you're not allowed to jump the queue because this is Britain and that's not something that we do. So it can be a very uncomfortable wait for some people um, just so that they can they can make that 30 second, one minute mark of respect as they see the Queen lying in state. And I think I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that really speaks to how many lives Her Majesty the Queen did in fact touch during her reign and the great affection that people held for her. That seems to be the, the running theme at the moment is, is how happy people are in order to see her, in order to have the opportunity to see her and in order to have seen her, in order to have met her. Um, I feel like there is a feeling of a closing in the UK at the moment. Um, I mean, it's definitely the end of an era. Um, we are no longer Elizabethans, though I don't know how many people ever considered us to be Elizabethans. For me, the, the, term, um, the term conjures some lovely Tudor image rather than, you know, living in 2022. But that's what we were. Um, and, and that is now, now over. And I think in addition to processing the death of the Queen and what that means, there is a lot of processing going on about the end of that era and that transition. Um, you know, the British uh, are famed for our keep calm and carry on mentality. 
but we don't do change particularly well. Um, one of the key things that came out of the the lockdowns during the COVID pandemic was this desire to to carry on, was this desire to get back to normal. And and that seems to be something that, that the British like. We like normality, we like routine. Um, but of course, we're not ever going to go back to what was normal. You know, we have to have this again, to use a, to use a phrase that was coined during the pandemic, we have to have a new normal. Um, and while in theory, it shouldn't be too different because in theory, who is on the throne doesn't impact very much of our day-to-day lives. Um, it's not like very many people had daily audiences with Her Majesty the Queen. There is that sense of, of underlying change. Um, there is that unease towards that underlying change. And I think, I think that will be around with us for a little while. Um, I was thinking about this yesterday. The, um, the state funeral is on Monday. Uh, it is a bank holiday. So just so as you are aware, all um, Teach Talk Radio shows planned for Monday have been postponed um, as a mark of respect. And the period of national mourning will, will draw to a close with the funeral kind of with next week, we will be returning to normal. Um, and I found myself actually quite anxious about that because I feel like this time of mourning is a, a liminal time, a liminal space. It's an in-between time where it's okay to, to grieve. It's okay to process what's happening. It's okay to be figuring out where we go next. And, and it kind of feels like by Tuesday, we should have all of that figured out and we should have dealt with those feelings and we should be ready to move on. Um, what is quite nerve-wracking to me, if I'm honest, is that I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that. I'm not sure whether I have processed everything. I'm not sure whether I am ready to go back to normal. Um, and I think lots of people will be feeling feeling the same way. So I'm going to kind of re-encourage what I encouraged last week, which is to do what you need to do personally. If you, of course, I'm not a monarchist, if you are a Republican and you are kind of over all of this that's going on, fantastic. You know, I'm sure that you are very ready to get back to normal. Um, if you are sitting on the fence, as it were, or if you like the royal family, but you don't really have any strong feelings, then that is also fine. I'm sure that you are ready to get back to normal. But if you do find that you need to take that extra time to process, to figure out what's what's going on, um, and even if you don't understand why you need that extra time, there is no, there's no harm in that. There is no shame in that. Um, you just do what you need to do, take care of yourself, um, and you will be fine you will. What I find most interesting, though, to go back to the queue, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, uh, which nobody will be surprised about. Um, what I find quite interesting about the queue is that the privilege of time, um, you know, we um, we saw yesterday, it was lauded that David Beckham stood in the queue for 12 hours um, in order to um, to see Her Majesty lying in state. And I thought, my first thought when I saw it was, oh, that's really nice, you know, good for him. And then I thought, how nice it is for him to have that privilege to be time rich in order to be able to go and queue for 12 hours 
on a Friday um, in order to go and see Her Majesty the Queen lying in state. Now, again, I realise that that makes me a hypocrite because, as I as I said at the top of the show, yesterday was, in fact, my day off. So I could have afforded, in theory, to go down to London and um, and spend 12 hours queuing for the Queen. But I had other things that I needed to do. I had books that I needed to mark. I had lessons that I needed to plan. I had all of those, those bits of teaching that happen when you're not in the classroom. And I just found myself thinking about how we there are all kinds of privileges that we tend to ignore. We tend to not think about even. It's not it's not um deliberate ignorance of them. It's it's not uh, sweeping them under the rug. It's just understanding that, uh, that that we don't always know they're there. And I think time privilege is one of those things because it's not necessarily something that we have as teachers. You know, we all get tired of the um, the stereotype of starting at nine, ending at three, having long summers. You know, in in Britain, we have a holiday every six or seven weeks. Um, and, and I think, again, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know, but people seem to forget that when we are not in the classroom, we are doing the bulk of the work that makes being in the classroom possible. Actually being in front of the children is only a very small fraction of our day. Um, I would argue it's the most important fraction of our day. And I would argue it's the reason why most of us go into teaching in the first place. But um, but it is only a very small part of what we do. You know, the rest of it, the emails that we send, the meetings that we attend, the, um, the, the lessons that we plan, the marking that we do, the mock exams that we write, all of that stuff takes place outside of the classroom is something that we are not necessarily recompensed for. Um, again, you know, we are privileged in that teaching is a salaried position in this country. So we are paid our set amount, depending where on the scale we are. And, and that that encompasses everything that we do. But it does take us a lot of time, a lot of time. I don't know any teacher, I don't think, that only keeps to a 40-hour work week, um, you know, which is supposedly the average in this country. And so time is a privilege that we don't have. Um, you know, even those of us who do have the privilege of getting a day off in the in the fortnight, a day off in the two-week timetable, um, it's it's not something that we all have. And you know, I'm not uh, I'm not bashing people who do have that time privilege. I'm actually very happy for them. Um, I'm glad that they have the opportunity to to go and to process and and, and to, to visit the Queen lying in state because clearly that's something that they want to do. If you're going to be in a queue for 24 hours, you absolutely want to do that. Um, uh, it's just, you know, sometimes we have to remember that not everybody has the same privileges that we do. Uh, Tim has texted in. Good morning, Tim. Tim is a fan of the show. And in fact, I'm sorry, Tim, you are a friend of the show. You might be a fan of the show, but I meant to call you a friend. Um, and Tim was, in fact, my very first guest. You can go back and listen to, to the two of us discussing children's literature. Um, you can go back and listen to all of the shows uh, on Spotify and on various podcasting apps. Um, do go back and listen because Tim has some very interesting things to say. 
um, about children's literature. So if that's something that you are interested in, please, please do go and check that out. But he says, um, I think it's important to remember there's no time limit on grief. State mourning needs a schedule but our emotions don't. Similar to time, our emotions are pretty much big balls of wibbly-wobbly, emoti-woti stuff. <laughs> very true, very true. And, and you know, you are right. You are right. Um, state mourning does need a schedule. You know, we can't do the same thing forever. And, and there does come a point, because we don't all feel the same way, there does come a point where, in this case, the state has to say, you know, it, it's it's over now. It is time to move forward. Let's do that. Um, but you are exactly right. Our emotions are, are not all the same and they're not always predictable. So as I said at the beginning, it is very, very important for us to uh, to try and do what is best for us. Right. Let's see whether we can listen to our news bulletin. That is a number of musical difficulties today. I'm going to try just once more. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the teacher's health coach. And I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers, including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger, and many more. There'll be talks, workshops, and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch, and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity, EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. With schools across all four home nations due to close on Monday the 19th of September as part of the plans for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, much of this week's news is set to focus on issues away from reflections and remembrance of the UK's longest serving monarch. In Scotland, the largest teaching union has voted to go on strike in a dispute over pay. The Educational Institute of Scotland, known as EIS, rejected a 5% pay offer following a ballot. The EIS announced on Friday the 16th of September that 91% of the responses to the consultative ballot had voted in favour of strike action. 94% of votes were also in favour of rejecting the 5% pay offer. 78% of all union members responded to the ballot. The union, which represents 8 out of 10 Scottish teachers, will reject the offer next week and move to a statutory ballot on strike action. 
EIS General Secretary said, teachers have simply had enough of the year-on-year struggle to achieve a fair pay settlement. She went on to say that 5% offer represents a real terms cut of 7%. Scottish teachers have previously been offered rises of 2% and 3.5% before the offer of 5%. The AIS said teachers' request for 10% was fair and reasonable. The Times has released its 2023 Good University Guide, with many media outlets from across the home nations reporting on the standings. With student debt now averaging around £50,000, it's more important than ever that young people research and find the right institution and course for them. The list includes profiles of 135 universities across Britain and uses data published by institutions in the last two months. The University of Bath is named University of the Year. Whilst it ranks eighth in the overall list, up from ninth in 2021, it won the award due to its strength across the board. Exeter was runner-up in this category, with Birmingham, Oxford and Surrey also shortlisted. Whilst Oxford misses out on the University of the Year award, it has again topped the league table, a position it has held for the past 12 years. St Andrews in Scotland was ranked second. Durham University was named Sports University of the Year thanks to its collegiate structure which encourages high levels of participation. The full list can be found by subscribing to the Times website. And finally, 250 former students at Bedford's Training College were awarded honorary degrees and reunited by the University of Bedfordshire this week. The graduates, now in their 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, attended the college between 1940 and 1978. The college, known in later years as the Bedford College of Physical Education, held a special ceremonies to celebrate sport and lifelong learning through physical activity. Most of the recipients have taught PE in schools, universities and local communities over the decades. In a week where service to others has been at the forefront of reflections about Her Majesty the Queen, the college has recognised the service and dedication of its former students. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about a social media post we regularly see. It goes something like this. I'm trying to show my class the reach of social media. Please reply with where you are in the world. Personally, I love this post and to honour it, I'm going to try it myself with a slight twist. I'm going to use the insert 3D map in Excel to show all of the places in the reply on a map of the world. It's so easy to do. You simply put a title in a new column, for example, towns, and then add all of the place names below. Finally, click insert and choose 3D map. If it's the first time you're using it, you'll need to follow a few prompts to get it working, but you'll be greeted with a 3D map of the world with a little square pinning all of the places you typed in. If you don't use Excel, don't worry. You can do the same in Google Maps by clicking on directions and adding every place as a waypoint on a journey. This is a great way of showing pupils the reach of social media posts in a way that they can visualize. I'll post the final map next week so you can use it with your pupils and save you a job. So what are you waiting for? Reply to my tweet or tell at TT Radio 2022 where you are and tag me in at Steve Woods one to one. Next week I'll post the results. TZ Radio 2022. Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. You've been listening to Teachers 
you have been listening um but i am not ready to end my show yet i have barely got started um we are like i said at the top we are talking cold calling today um cold calling is currently in vogue again it seems um i've had inset on it very very recently i know lots of people have added had inset on it quite recently i think as inspections have been gearing up again um over the last year or so people have been thinking more about it thinking about whether it is in fact what what inspectors are looking for um but more importantly thinking about the the pedagogy of it thinking about the the relevance of it uh tom sharrington on his uh teacher head blog back in february 2021 calls it the number one strategy for inclusive classrooms um we have a blog from martha rush uh this was back in 2018 but she says cold calling done right is an effective way to build classroom participation uh whereas mitchell handelsman who i have uh referenced on the show before um points out that like most discussions of pedagogy and ethics whether or not we should cold call students um, involves issues and complexities. It's hard, he says, to have or understand blanket policies um, because most of us fall somewhere in between, which I personally would agree with. For those of you who are not sure, or just in case in your context you call it something different, cold calling is the idea that when we ask students a question, um, we don't wait for them to raise their hands and we don't in fact use anything like um, lollipop sticks to choose a name or a a wheel on the whiteboard to choose somebody. We pick theoretically at random from the students that we have in front of us. Now, as I've said, I personally am not a fan of cold calling right now. Again, I don't know whether in an hour's time when we bring the show to a close, whether that will still be the case. However, um, right now as it stands, I I don't like it. And I've been trying to figure out why, kind of why I have this gut reaction against cold calling. And the first thing that I thought of was the other meaning that cold calling has in, certainly in the UK, uh, and in other Englishes around the world. So cold calling, as I said, in a teaching context is when you choose a student seemingly at random to answer a question. But cold calling is also when you have somebody um, that you don't know, that you haven't invited, somebody unsolicited phoning you or arriving at your house, um, usually in an attempt to sell you something. Um, you know, so telemarketers are cold callers. Um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, when they are out on their their missions, are cold callers. So anybody who arrives um, where you are without being invited initially, in the first instance, in order to speak to you about something they have to offer. When I was a paperboy, um, I took note of the houses that had little no calling please stickers on uh sorry no cold calling please stickers on their um on their letterboxes uh, and i never quite knew whether that meant they wanted the paper or not um i delivered the free newspaper so in theory it went to everybody um but i knew that not everybody wanted it and 
I was thinking um, as I was planning the show about how we respect adults when they say no cold calling, please. We respect when people don't want to have their their landline numbers in a phone book um, because they don't want unsolicited calls. We respect when people keep their mobiles on silent um, so that the, um, the, the spam calls don't come through. And yet we don't respect students who may not wish to answer a question, who may not wish to be called on. And there is something about that that doesn't quite sit right with me. This idea that we don't offer the same type of respect, the same type of autonomy to our students as we do to adults. Because I couldn't get away with, as a paperboy, knocking on the door of somebody who said, no cold callers, please, and trying to sell them a newspaper, um, they would have had every right to, to phone the news agent and, and complain about me. Even if I thought it was in their best interests to have the newspaper, if I thought that they needed to know what was going on in the world, um, that wouldn't have mattered. And so why am I not extending that same, um, that same respect towards my students who because I think it's important to know whether or not they are thinking, um, are called on, are requested to ask questions, uh, to answer questions. I'm sorry. So we'll look at some pros of cold calling to start with, um, because again, like I said, I am open-minded. Um, I don't mind proving myself wrong. I don't mind proving myself wrong live on air either. Um, I do think it's very, very important for teachers to be able to go, no, okay, I made a mistake, um, and then change their thinking. And I think it's important for, for teachers to be comfortable changing their classroom practice. Um, because if we just always did the exact same thing we've always done, there would be no movement. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by taking two thought experiments from Tom Sherrington's blog, the Teacher Head blog, and I'm just going to kind of think through them uh, as we go. Now, as always, as I'm thinking through these experiments, please do, if you have any, any comments, please do text in. If you're on the Podbean app, please do feel free to call in. I am taking calls today. Uh, please do tweet me at Mr. D. Lester, L-E-S-T-E-R, that's all one word, um, with your thoughts because I would be interested to um, I would be interested to speak to you. So scenario A, Tom Sherrington comes up with is the class is dominated by questioning where the teacher engages primarily with students who volunteer with hands up or by simply calling out. It's the norm. It can seem lively on the surface, but nearly always it's just a few students who dominate while others are marginal, passive, silent. They might be thinking, they might not be. It's possible to think nothing and say nothing and nobody will notice. So far, I agree. I'm, I'm on board with this thought experiment so far. Um, usually, this goes along with questions of the type, can anyone tell me? Can anyone remember? Who knows? Does everyone understand? Who has an answer for? I've asked every single one of those types of questions, and I think all of us, even the most ardent cold callers, will say that they have, uh, they've done the same thing. 
Some students usually have answers, so others just don't have to. Thinking is optional. Some students' default is just to wait for someone else to answer because they always do. Okay, yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. It's very easy in a classroom for some students to monopolize, to dominate the conversation, to always want to answer. Um, I think that's very natural. That's a natural part of being a child. Um, I remember sitting in school and being the one that wanted to answer. Um, I know it quite often does the rounds that the people who become teachers are often the ones who uh, who were the, the worst behaved in school. Um, I personally do not fit that mould. I was, I was very much a goody two-shoes um, and I always wanted to answer. Um, if I thought I knew the answer, I was quite happy to. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's fine. I, I, I agree with all of that. And, and yes, some students' default is to wait and to see if somebody else will answer. And chances are somebody else will attempt to answer. He goes on to present scenario B. The class where the teacher nearly always selects who should respond next by name. No hands up, no calling out. It could be anyone. This is the norm. Students all anticipate being asked to respond, sharing their thoughts. Everyone mentally prepares an answer to every question in readiness for being selected. They are all involved. Nobody dominates. Over time, everyone contributes. Questions are addressed to the whole class, followed by a pause, and then, Michael, what were you thinking? Safia, what answer did you get? Shafiq, how did you explain it? Thinking is required from everyone. Everyone is included. And then Tom Sherrington asks, or poses the question, scenario A is very common, but why would you accept this when you could generate scenario B? Now, scenario B, I feel, makes a lot of assumptions. And again, if you disagree with me, please let me know. I'm quite happy to have uh, to have my thinking interrogated here. But scenario B assumes that all students are going to do the thinking in anticipation of being asked. So scenario B has a very positive mindset towards our students. Scenario B says that all of the students are thinking. Is that true, though, is my question. Because scenario A takes the exact opposite mindset and assumes that the default of some students is not to think. And that they can get away with that because they know that they won't be asked if they don't volunteer. But why, I'm wondering, if we're doing, if we're looking at the same class, the same students, why is um, Safia, I'll take her from, from example B, going to suddenly start thinking when she knows she could be called on, when her answer to the question could just be, I don't know. And we've all had that. We've all had, I'm sure, that instance of cold calling in a classroom and the answer that comes from the student is, I don't know. And of course, there are a couple of ways that you can deal with that. You can keep pushing. You know, if you've given them the thinking time, which we'll talk about in a second, then then you can you can push for that. You can say, you know, oh, come on, you were just talking in a group. What did your group say? And you then have to manage the other people in the group wanting to answer that question or that student digging their heels in and maintaining, I don't know. 
which then becomes quite uncomfortable for everybody involved. Conversely, the um, putting hands up model, the putting hands up experiment here, assumes that, um, that Safia hasn't been thinking and so isn't going to volunteer. But what if Safia has been thinking and volunteering makes her uncomfortable? What if Safia has quite extreme anxiety? Now, of course, I would know that because I know Safia's profile and I understand that if there are um, conditions, for example, for, yeah, for example, anxiety, which preclude her from wanting to be involved, then of course I wouldn't cold call her. But does that then take away from the power of cold calling? Because if, if Safia knows that I know that she doesn't like to be cold called, under the thought experiment of A, she also knows that she won't be called on, and so she might not think. And so this idea is making all sorts of presumptions about the nature of our students. And, and in some instances, it's quite negative presumptions because the, the assumption has to be here that students do not want to answer the question. Because the assumption in thought experiment A is that students don't want to answer and so they won't if they can get away with it. And the assumption in B is that students don't want to answer and so I have to force them by not giving them the ability to opt out. And I think that underestimates our children quite a lot. Yes, I will concede that there are probably children who do not want to answer. There probably are children who just want to coast through the, the lesson, who want to make it to break time, to lunch time, so they can um, talk to their friends, play football, whatever it is they want to do. But I do actually think that the vast majority of children like thinking, they like learning, they like being challenged. And so I think if you are coming from a place of children don't want to think, you're automatically doing them a disservice. And so I think that kind of basis for choosing your pedagogy, for choosing your questioning technique um, is, is flawed, personally. So Tom Shankin goes on to say, this is the, the power of cold calling. Um, and it is strongly promoted by Doug Lemoff in Teach Like a Champion. If you've not read Teach Like a Champion, I, I highly recommend it. Um, I very much respect what Doug Lemoff says um, in that book and, and lots of his ideas. And, and, and this is the thing, and I think this is something that quite often gets lost in teaching, is that we can respect pedagogy, we can respect different ideas, we can respect different practices, we can respect different practitioners, even if we don't agree with everything that they say. And I see this quite a lot on, on Twitter, how um, threads will devolve into arguments because two people don't agree on a correct practice. And, and they find it difficult to come to any kind of middle ground. Because sometimes, and, and I talked about this a few weeks ago on um, my show about creating the teacher persona. Uh, please do go back and listen to that one if, if you haven't already. We quite often build our self-esteem into our practice. And so it can feel like 
having your practice interrogated, having your practice questioned is you being interrogated, is you being questioned. And we have to remember that it's not. It's not. Interrogating different practices is actually the best way, in my opinion, for us to figure out who we are as teachers. And again, I feel like we should always be evolving. I'm in year 16 um, of teaching right now. I did three years of, of training before that because I have a B.Ed. Uh, so 19 years I've been in the classroom and, and I love to learn new things about teaching. I love to I kind of come from the low self-esteem place of assuming that I'm doing it wrong <laughs> and that other people know better than I do um, until I've interrogated it like we're doing today um, and, and, and figured out whether something is going to work for me. And so, you know, here I am not at all, I'm not at all um, calling into question what Tom Sherrington, what Doug Lemoff are saying. I am just trying to figure out whether this works for me. So, Tom Sherrington gives a very good rundown of what cold, cold calling should look like in an ideal scenario. He says, um, ask the question to begin with. And the example that he gives is, what's a good way to work out 12 times 17? Then give thinking time. So no hands up at this point, no calling out at this point. You have them think. Um, I like that. I like that. Because I think a lot of time when students give the wrong answer it's because they they felt caught on the hop they felt like because they're quite competitive generally with each other they feel like being first is the most important so they will answer before they've really had time to process and we've all had it we've all had it where we've asked a question a student gives a wrong answer then when they find out the correct answer, they go, oh, I was going to say that. And, uh, and you know, lots of us make jokes about it. Um, my, my default response to that is always, well, why didn't you? Um, and it's, it's not a sarcastic question. I, I honestly want to try and get to the bottom of their understanding. If you knew the answer, why, why did you not say it? Um, and it is quite often because in the rush to get there first, they just say the first thing that comes to mind without really processing your your question. So I do feel like thinking time is a good idea. And of course, that's when you can bring in think pair share if if that's part of your part of your practice, the idea of getting them to talk to the person sitting next to them. It's where you could get them um, writing their thought process. I attended a seminar on Tuesday evening about metacognition, about the the thinking of thinking. And the, the, the gentleman that ran it was talking a lot about having students record their thinking process. Um, he approached it from an angle of, if we do that, then we've got something to show parents, we've got something to show inspectors, we've got something to show senior leaders um, to, to prove that we are doing metacognition. Um, and again, while I don't agree with that angle, quite often getting students to write their thought process down can be quite revealing to us and to them. Um, and to lots of our students, it's beneficial. I personally process through writing. And so, you know, if I had a mini whiteboard, if I had uh, a jotter, uh, if I had a learning journal rather than an exercise book, and I was able to write through my thought process, I might be able to make my connections a bit quicker than if I were talking to somebody or if I were just thinking by myself. So I think thinking time, regardless of, of what your preferred 
uh, questioning method is. I think thinking time is always very, very useful. Then it says select someone to respond. And the way, the example that he gives here, again, keeping with our 12 times 17 um, scenario is, right, so Kelly, what were you thinking? And he says that that needs to be warm and invitational. And Kelly then responds, I think it's 204. So as the teacher, you have selected somebody completely at random, in theory. I'll come back to that in a second. And you are inviting them to answer the question and you are being warm and invitational. Now, again, I cannot personally think of a scenario where you would invite a student to ask a question and not be warm and invitational. Now, again, I am one of those teachers who who believes in fostering a a warm atmosphere in my classroom. Um, in case this is your first show, in case you didn't know, I am a, a languages teacher. And so in my classroom, there is a lot of, of talking uh, in a foreign language. And that can be really, really uh, intimidating for students because they feel judged immediately. They know that I'm listening. They know that I am at a higher level of language than they are, and they think that I'm making snap judgments every time anything comes out of their mouth. So for me, it's really important to foster a, a classroom where they feel um, that they can make mistakes, that they can speak and get something wrong, because they will, because we all do. Um, I still do when I'm chatting, that doesn't mean that I don't speak my languages, doesn't mean that I don't speak my languages fluently. It just means that quite often my mouth works faster than my brain does. Um, and, and so for me, it's very important, it's very important to have that that warm atmosphere. But, you know, again, in, in 19 years, I don't think I've ever seen a teacher when asking a question who doesn't do that. Even the teachers whose practice is based around being tough, whose practice is based around being strict, um, they still invite questions warmly. You know, there is never a, a brusqueness that I personally have seen. So again, I think I think that is really good. And I think that applies to, to all methodology. Uh, then the teacher responds to the answer. Uh, yes, that's the right answer. What was your method? So we've got a follow-up question now, still on Kelly. So th at this point, this isn't cold calling, this is getting Kelly to um, expand on her thinking. And again, if we are taking that baseline of students don't want to think and students don't want to participate, don't we now have students checking out of this conversation because they know that Kelly is the one being asked? Then it says, uh, select another student. So the example here is, is oh, Kelly does her, her response. She says, I did 10 times 17, then 2 times 17 and added them up. And then the teacher says, great. And Abdi, what about you? What method did you use? Now, in the example, Abdi has a different method. I did 10 times 12 to make 120. 7 times 12 is 84. And then added them together. But Again, if we are taking the assumption, the baseline that students don't want to think, what would stop Abdi from just saying, I did the same as Kelly? Which, again, is something that we've all encountered, I'm sure, um, in our questioning at some point. And it could be true. Abdi could well have done exactly the same method 
um, as Kali, particularly if that kind of, of parsing is what I've just taught. But Abdi could also be saying that because he didn't want to do the thinking. So even in this call calling scenario, we do have places where other students can check out of the conversation. And so personally, I am not yet seeing uh, this utopian idea where everybody has to be thinking all of the time. Uh, so Tom evaluates his thought process by saying, uh, in the cold call scenario, Kelly and Abdi anticipate being asked, they think and they engage, it's the norm. It's safe, friendly, supportive, and inclusive. If they were wrong or unsure, the teacher finds out and can respond, offering appropriate support or instruction. The scenario A experience could be very different. The teacher asks, does anyone know 12 times 17? Michael knows. Michael puts his hand up. He's correct. The teacher thanks him and moves on. Kelly and Abdi had barely registered the question, let alone thought of an answer. Now, again, I agree with that. I agree with that. Because if we take, uh, let's take Kelly, for example, and suggest here that she has slow processing, then by the time... I've asked a question, Michael has worked out the answer and responded. Kelly may have only just processed the question. So again, I agree that the, the pacing of questioning can sometimes be off if you're going with a hands-up method. And again, that's why I quite like inserting the thinking time. I think that's very good practice. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Abdi, who maybe doesn't have slow processing checked out. Maybe he wanted to volunteer as well. Maybe he put his hand up as well. And maybe on the teacher's lesson plan, they had written that they were going to call on Michael. Because again, and I think this is where the root of my, um, my aversion to cold calling comes from. Because I remember in my teacher training, uh, particularly in the first year, we had to plan to whom we were going to ask our questions. So it looked like cold calling, but it was figured out in advance. Um, they never quite explained to us why we had to do that. Uh, I personally think it's so that we remembered to ask questions, um, because that's not always intuitive. That's not always something we think to do, particularly when you're a new teacher and you are you are consumed with getting through your content, getting through your plan. But we had already pre-selected who we were going to ask those questions to. And at the beginning, when you're not confident, you, by which we mean I, <laughs> pre-selected students, I thought would know the answer because I wasn't yet confident enough in my teaching to want to tackle an incorrect answer in that moment. If I had a tech, if I had an exercise book in front of me and it was incorrect, then I had time to process what the student had done. I had time to figure it out or to ask my class teacher for some advice. But in the moment, I think had I had an incorrect answer, I'd have gone, okay, no, that's not quite right. And then moved on to my next person with their hand up while I processed the thinking so that I could correct that first student privately a bit later on. And so it, it, it looked like cold calling, but in fact, it, it, it wasn't. It was, it was a pseudo cold calling. Um, Tim has texted in again. He says, 
rather than thinking about the question, I'd usually be silently panicking I was going to be singled out. And that's a really interesting point. That's a really interesting point because I think that's quite common. And I think that's more common than we give it credit for. Um, I was talking to a teacher friend of mine before the show, and, and he said something very, very similar. He said that he had an inset where cold calling was the norm and the trainer was just picking people at random to um, to answer questions. And he hated that because of that fear of being singled out. Um, I hate it. We had a very similar inset where um, our... Uh, our senior deputy head was demonstrating cold calling. And I hated the idea that I might be called out. Now, I'm not a, a nervous person. You know, I wouldn't be hosting the show. I wouldn't be here with you every Saturday morning if I were a particularly nervous person, if I didn't like speaking in front of other people. However, I do have an anxiety disorder. Um, I'm quite happy to to tell you all that. Um, I'm quite happy to discuss that here because I'm a, an advocate for teacher mental health. Um, and so even though I have no issue talking in front of people and I have no issue talking about pedagogy in front of people, very happy to talk about teaching. I will do that all day long. I still did not want to be called on. And so again, just as just as... Tim said, rather than actually thinking through the question that our senior deputy had asked, and it was a, it was a pedagogical question, I was sitting there going, please don't pick me, please don't pick me, please don't pick me, please don't pick me. And that's exactly the scenario that our students are in. Because they are with their peers, they know that a question is coming, and I would posit, I would suggest that the students who want to be called on are the same as the students who would raise their hands anyway. So I agree with you, Tim, completely. And I think quite often it can be more damaging to put students on the spot. And in fact, um, in Mitchell Handelsman's article, The Case of Classroom Cold Calling, What Do You Think? Um, on Psychology Today, he says it might be harmful for some students to be put on the spot. They may feel intimidated, perhaps too intimidated, even to come to class or to pay attention. I'd be violating the principle of non <sighs> I would be violating the principle of do no harm. And I think that's very, very important. We know that school avoidance is an unfortunately a common occurrence we know that school avoiders children who don't want to come into school of the morning um their numbers are on the rise and of course i'm not suggesting at all that cold calling is responsible for that but i do have to wonder how many of our students particularly because we are seeing more and more students exhibiting anxiety and depression uh, after the pandemic. Lots of, lots of anti-lockdown people like to point this out. And so I do wonder how many of our students actually, particularly now, do have some kind of, of anxious trauma 
almost that they are processing that we may not know about, but that putting them on the spot like this might um, might exacerbate. Um, this this article, Mitchell's article, goes on then to say, why don't we reward the students who do want to answer and leave the others alone? So those who actually do want to answer, those who are interested in, in the subject, why don't we want to reward them? Why don't we want to um, keep them on our side, keep them interested in our subject? I'm thinking specifically now about the, the middle attainers, those who are kind of on the cusp um, and again, in, in languages, we see a lot of those. The ones who are very much interested in language when they're young. Because in my experience, um, you walk into a, a year three class, you walk into a class of eight-year-olds, or you walk into a reception class of four-year-olds, and they are super excited by the idea of language. Um, kind of like I was. And I spoke on the show last week when we were celebrating National German Day about um, my experience as a young language learner. Please do go back and listen to that um, if you haven't already. That was that was a good show. But um, as they get older, as, as they become more self-conscious particularly, we do see students who were very into languages when they were younger begin to drop off. Um, this particularly happens around speaking. Because they are self-conscious, they don't want to speak in front of uh, a language specialist. They don't want to speak in front of their peers. And so that interest can very quickly be lost if we push them. So why are we not rewarding the ones who are stepping outside of their comfort zone, perhaps, and volunteering and leaving the others alone? Again, if we're coming from a, a baseline of the majority of students do want to learn, which I do believe, they do want to think, I think, then they can just be left alone. If they want to do the thinking but not say it out loud, there is nothing wrong with that. They've still done the thinking. And I can still check their thought process by looking at their book. Again, particularly if they've recorded the metacognition, particularly if they've written down their thought process. Um, I am a big fan of moving away from traditional exercise books and more into uh, learning journals, more into jotters, more into commonplace books. Um, I will talk more about that, I think, on next week's show, because um, I want to come up with some ideas of how we can, can change how we use exercise books. But using them to record the thinking process actually is more valuable. Um, if we are coming from a place where we have to justify a lot of our practice, which as teachers we do, we do have to justify much of our practice, then having the thinking recorded in an exercise book or written on a, a mini whiteboard and photographed and then put on, on OneNote on their devices if you are in a one-to-one -one device school, that can prove to parents it can prove to stakeholders, it can prove to your line manager that thinking has happened. And then they don't have to take our word for it because they don't take our word for other things. They don't take our word for whether we have taught the curriculum. They go back and they look at our long-term planning. And so we kind of expect them to take our word for thinking processes, particularly in cold calling, I feel. 
And so, you know, having that metacognition written down proves all of those things. And then we can leave those students who don't want to volunteer alone. That will also then allow us to pick up on the students who are not thinking. Because that's kind of the point of cold calling, as far as I see it, is so that we can find those students who are not doing the thinking and engage them. But if I'm looking through an exercise book and I'm seeing that in the last three lessons, Sarah has only done one of the metacognitive activities, I can address that. I can talk to her. I can find out what's going on. And if it turns out that Sarah is just not wanting to think, if she is just being a bit lazy, I can find strategies around that. I don't necessarily have to risk her not being lazy, but her being anxious and exacerbating that situation in order to get her to think. So that's that's just kind of where where I come from in that. So returning to the, the pros of cold calling, um, lots and lots of websites. If you were to Google cold calling, there are lots of there are lots of sites which give us lists of pros. Uh, the most common ones that come up are everyone's contributions matter. And I think that's always true. Personally. Um, I think anybody in my classroom who wants to volunteer, their contribution matters to me. If I were picking uh, a name from a lolly stick, that contribution mattered. And I do think that if you are fostering an environment where contribution matters, then those middle ground kids, the ones who are not sure the ones who always preface their answer with, I don't know if this is right, but they're going to be the ones who are more likely to answer at that point. And they're also the ones, I feel, to return to what Tim said when he texted in, who might be the ones who have been panicking. Because the ones who just don't want to answer probably don't care enough to panic. They will be the ones who you cold call and they will be perfectly happy to say, I don't know. Whereas the ones who are on that cusp, the ones who are going to go, I don't know if this is right, but might be the ones who stumble through that answer and that makes them feel more self-conscious. And so I think that valuing everyone's contribution doesn't preclude calling out their name because they've put their hand up. And in fact, putting having them put their hand up shows that you value that contribution because they are not seemingly being chosen at random, even if you've made your list of, of um, people to ask right at the beginning. They are, they are welcome into the space, into the thinking space that you are creating. Um, accountability is another big one uh, that comes up on the list of pros. Um, and, and again, Tom Sherrington mentions this. He says... Um, the routine use of cold call establishes the student's mental habit that when a question is asked, they need to listen, engage and think. Uh, it's not a big deal. It happens all the time. The effect is that students always feel involved. They can't opt out. 
But again, they will try to. The ones who don't want to engage will try to opt out. Um, again, I don't remember who it was. I'm very sorry. But I saw somebody this morning make a joke on Twitter about um, that frustrating moment where you ask a really good question and you think a student is going to answer, but instead they say, can I go to the toilet? There is nothing stopping that student from saying that when you've cold called them. They will still find their avoidance strategies. And again, you, you find yourself in that loop of, at what point do I stop pushing this student and move on to ask somebody else? That is negated, in my opinion, if we don't cold call, uh, because if they don't want to answer, they just don't raise their hand. They don't need to find that avoidance strategy. And we already see those avoidance strategies. I had I had a couple in, in a lesson I taught on Thursday where I could see that two students were finding the content difficult. And like clockwork, those two students that I had spotted asked if they could go to the toilet when they were set off on the independent task. And, and so I saw that and, and I knew that they were avoiding. And I think if I had been cold calling, they would have used that same strategy. Uh, it says, uh, this list of pros that I have says, everyone is made to think, or at least it makes more students think more of the time. And this is now where I'm starting to get on board. I think it's the absolute that I don't like. It's the absolute of cold calling is always going to engage all of your students. Because as I've said, that's not true. That can't be true. Um, in the same way that I don't for one second believe that any of, of you guys listening have engaged with everything that I've had to say. Because, you know, you might have gone and put the kettle on while you've had me on in the background and missed 30 seconds or something that I've said. And, and that's fine. That is not a big deal. Um, and so the idea that perhaps it makes more of them think more of the time is a better way to approach it. I do like that better. Um, Willingham points out, and I do love, I love this quote, memory is the residue of thought. And that's true. I think. I do not believe that we can remember anything if we've not thought about it, if we've not engaged with it. So if students don't think, then they don't learn. But again, whether or not, and I keep coming back to this point, and I think this is the crux of my argument today, I think that if students, uh, I think that students do not have to be cold called in order to be encouraged to think. And I think that's this whole show, um, you know, that's 66 minutes of me talking all wrapped up in, in one sound bite. Um, I think if you can find ways of encouraging students to think, and cold calling might be one of them. Again, I'm not saying that if you are a cold calling teacher, that that's wrong, that that's bad. But I think if you have a range of strategies to encourage thinking, and let's be honest, that is our job as teachers to transfer information and to get students to think about it. Then um, you are more likely to get that engagement. You are more likely to get those answers. Now, Tom Sherrington sums it up quite nicely here. He says, uh, I'm not asking you to think if you feel like it. I'm creating the conditions where you are more likely to think because you know I may ask you to give an answer. I like the beginning of that. 
Uh, I'm not asking you to think if you feel like it. I'm creating the conditions where you are more likely to think. What I don't like is this perceived threat then. I'm asking you to think because I might ask you and you don't want to be embarrassed in front of your friends. It's kind of how that boils down to. What that boils down to. And, and to me, that's kind of the opposite of creating a warm and inclusive classroom. I don't want my students to be scared of embarrassing themselves in front of their friends. I actually want them to be willing to make mistakes. I want them to be willing to try. I want them to want to. Remember, will is Old English for want. If someone is willing, they are wanting. And that, that's what I want. I don't want to, to threaten my students into answering. I, in the same way that I wouldn't say, if you don't answer this question, I'm putting you in detention. I don't want to have to say, if you don't answer this question, that's because you haven't thought. Because again, I don't know if that process is true. I don't know if that process is true at all. Um, Tom Sherrington does go on to say, cold calling should be the default question mode, but it doesn't stand alone. And again, I agree with this. I think we need to be shaking up our practice all the time. I think we need to be changing things as often as we can. In fact, he says, it works better if students understand its role in a wider matrix of questioning modes. And that's quite interesting. That's quite interesting. If you explain to the children, I'm going to do some cold calling now, and I'm doing this, because I think that it will make you all think, because I think maybe you are more likely to think if you don't know if I'm going to call on you. That opens up an interesting conversation in your classroom and it engages the children in that metacognitive process because they can come back and they can say, actually, no. You know, the ones who don't like it, if they're confident enough, can come back to you and say, sorry, sir, actually, I think... I'm a little bit scared of being called called, and so I'm not going to think through. You know, kind of like Tim was saying when he texted in earlier. It also opens up the transparency between you and the class. And, and I think that's quite important, particularly in fostering these positive relationships where you want to create an environment where children are not scared to answer. Because... The children are the ones learning. Again, I talked about this a few weeks ago uh, around GCSE and A-level results day. They're the ones who learn. I can't relearn French for my kids. I can't relearn Mandarin. I can't relearn Latin. They're the ones who have to do it. And, and because they're the learners, because they're the ones who have the biggest stake in each lesson, they probably should be involved in the conversations about how they learn. They probably should be able to say, actually, this is the way that works best for me. And of course, as teachers, we cannot do that for everything. Um, it's, it's kind of like Tim said at the top of the show um, about how um, about how the national period of mourning has to come to an end because we're not all the same. And not all of our learners are the same, but we kind of have to find a middle ground. And so involving them in that process can help you to do that and can create that confident classroom. 
Uh, Tim has texted in. Oh, in fact, this came before the the last one that I replied to. So I'm sorry that I missed this before. He says, "Um, I just wanted to confirm a point you made earlier. I've always presented as more confident than I am. But one of the things I was bullied about at school was my speaking voice. I used to spend almost every lesson filled with the dread that I'd be cold called and have to speak. Thank you, Tim, for for sharing that with us. Because um, again, I think that's a very, very important point for us to to keep in mind. Um, children with each other can be quite ruthless, um, and and you know that's something that as as teachers, but also just as adults in the world, we see all the time. And children, because children are very tribal, they will find ways to. Um, to, to call on the differences between somebody else and them. They like a them and us mentality. And again, we see this in, in the classroom. Um, an example that I use when I talk about this quite frequently is when my classes say, are you going to set us homework? And they will automatically make that divide between me as the teacher and them as the cohesive whole. But they will also create divides between themselves and other students, particularly if they feel that that strengthens those those tribal bonds. And so if somebody's speaking voice is um, a a source of ridicule, then that's going to be something that that student doesn't want to, to put out there all of the time. And again, that does need to be dealt with. You know, our students do need to be told that the way somebody speaks is not a reason. You know, there's never a reason to ridicule somebody. But somebody's speaking voice is perhaps one of the most ridiculous reasons, one of the most ridiculous justifications that anybody can try and come up with for um, for, for ridiculing somebody. Um, and again, I, I won't go off on a rant here, but I think if we were to have more representation of voices in media, uh, particularly of accent, um, I think that would be be very, very important. We have, in fact, had a show quite recently on whether teacher accent has um, has impacted career. Uh, I believe it was Jeff, one of Jeff's shows, so please do go back and listen to that if you are interested. Um, again, as a linguist, I'm very interested in, in the idea of accents and how we speak. Um, and so, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And one of the, the ways that we can get around that as a teacher without cold calling is having them write answers on mini whiteboards. Now, again, that does open all of the students up to the idea of getting it wrong, because when you ask them to show you the whiteboard, they are displaying their answer not just to you, but to everybody. And in some ways, that does the same thing that cold calling does because it doesn't give any of them the option of opting out, because at the same time, they are all going to display their thinking. And in fact, if that's what we are trying to get at, if we don't necessarily want to know whether they know the answer, but we want to see a student's thinking, having them write their answer on a small whiteboard and show you allows you to see that the whole class has thought. It doesn't just single out one student. And and that's what the whole of this conversation about cold calling has been about. It's been about involving everybody. But again, when you cold call, you are asking just one person. You can then go back and ask somebody else. 
But if you're going to do that 34 times to involve your whole class, that's going to be the bulk of your lesson gone on just one question. Whereas if you get them to write it on the whiteboard, you are seeing all 34 answers at once. And, you know, as teachers, we're used to speed reading. We can scan that very, very quickly. And we can see, we can make sure that they have all been thinking. Or if you have students, for example, who are um, not confident with their ability to write and you are in a one-to-one -one device school, I find quite often that getting them to um, write their answer on their device, on a Word document, on a piece of whiteboard software, and then being able to view their screens is a very good way to do that because they can then still keep that private. They don't need to share it with the others, and so they might not be um, embarrassed if they get the wrong answer because you're the only one looking at it. Uh, during the first lockdown, I made extensive use of the website whiteboard.fi, which allowed me to create a class, assign each of my students a um, an individual mini whiteboard that only they could see on their screens, but I could see all of them. And by doing that, I was able to see in real time adjusting for the lag of, of updating the whiteboards, their thinking process. And I was able to ask questions and have them all answer at once. And if somebody didn't answer, I was able to address that without embarrassing them and without um, exacerbating any issues that may have prevented them from answering. Because I was able to say, oh, not everybody answered that question. So I would like to see everybody participating next time. I didn't single out the student that didn't answer. And I didn't say that it was compulsory to answer next time because, of course, uh, this was a, a distance lesson. And so I didn't know what was going on with that student. Perhaps they'd had connection difficulties uh, and, and they weren't able to, to access the whiteboard. Uh, perhaps they were having a bad day. Perhaps their little brother had COVID and they were worried. There were all sorts of reasons why they might not have answered, but I was able to phrase it as I would appreciate it if you all tried. I would like everybody to try and answer next time. Because actually it is the thinking that was the most important. And then that took away any potential embarrassment of getting the wrong answer or, or not, um, not trying. And to call back to Tim's point, it took away the embarrassment of, of having to speak. Because again, in that situation, and we all had it, we all had students who, who pretended that their microphones were broken so that they didn't need to speak on, on Zoom or on Teams or, or whatever, you were, uh, whatever you were teaching on. And if you have a student who is being um, bullied, who is being victimised because of their speaking voice, they might be more likely to answer then if they're writing down than um, if you were to just cold call them. So I think rather than cold calling, what I'm doing right now is talking myself into asking for a bigger mini whiteboard budget. Um, because to me right now, that seems to be the best way uh, to, to have questions answered. There are of course, lots of different ways that we can cold call. Um, if we're choosing to do that in order to build confidence. So again, um, I don't want you to, to go away from this thinking 
that I think that if you're cold calling, then you're you're doing teaching wrong. Because that's not true at all. Uh, and there are some interesting ideas here that uh, that you can use, even if you choose not to cold call. So there's the pre-call. Now I did a teach like a champion course back early last uh, calendar year. And the pre-call was one of the most interesting things that I took away from that. The idea of pre-calling is that you tell the students that you are going to cold call them. So you say, okay, um, uh, Abdul and Bob, we're going to watch this video and then I'm going to ask the two of you what the boy talking in the video said. I'm going to ask you to translate that for the class. Now, I found that interesting to start with because to me, that's the exact opposite of cold calling. Because if cold calling exists so that all students are thinking, but you've told Abdul and Bob that they are the two students who are going to be called on, that does give the rest of the class a pass not to think. The same way as the students who have already decided that they're not going to engage are not going to think. But the, the Teach Like a Champion course that I did went on to talk about how what you could then do is cold call afterwards. So you take Abdul and Bob and you take their points, but then you ask um, uh, Liz to uh, try and elaborate on what Abdul had said. Which, of course, then does encourage them to listen to each other, because that can be another issue with, with questioning, is the fact that our students are so keen to uh, to get the right answer that they are more interested in thinking about what they're saying than listening to everybody else. I trained as a social constructivist, so I trained under the idea that knowledge isn't transferred from teacher to student, but it is built based on what the student hears, not just from the teacher, but from the other people around them. And so if we can encourage them to listen to each other and build on what other people are saying, then that's going to help to build that knowledge. That's going to help them to increase that knowledge. You know, in the same way that when we all did our degrees, a lot of the learning that we did came from reading what other people had written and then contrasting that to what somebody else had written. It's what I'm doing right now. I'm reading with you all of these blogs, all of these ideas about cold calling, and I'm building my knowledge on it. You know, it's that same idea, it's that same principle. So you could then bring the cold calling, the, the pure cold calling, I suppose, in after that to help to build the knowledge. But the pre-call is an interesting one because that's not something that I would consider to be cold calling. Uh, there is batched cold call. Uh, so again, this is where you do the same. Uh, it's the same as the, uh, the pre-call except you do your explanation first so they can watch the video of let's say a boy talking about his hobbies first you they've watched it and you then say right now mike and then rosie and then sam i'm going to ask you questions so all the students have had to engage with the content but mike and rosie and sam know that they are the three students now who are going to be asked 
that does um, encourage the engagement because the students don't know at the top of the film that they're the ones going to be asked. So they do listen just in case. But perhaps um, it allows them to switch off once they know that it's Mike and Rosie and Sam who are going to get the uh, who are going to get the questions afterwards. And there's also something inherent in the order, because I tried this when I was feeding back uh, from the course that I did. I did a, a whole school inset on it. Uh, I tried that exact same thing. And I asked the teacher in Mike's position, the first teacher, how they felt being first. And they hated it because there was no thinking time. There was no time for them to process what they were going to say. Whereas the teacher in Sam's position, the third person that I asked, had already heard two answers and was able to build on that by the time I got to them. So they were much more confident. And I noticed that that answer was much more fluent and it was much more developed than the first one was. The, the final cold calling technique is called rehearse and affirm. So that's where, again, you, you give them the opportunity to, to practice. And in Tom Sharrington's blog, he suggests that this is where you use your whiteboards so they can practice giving the answer. And then you cold call the students who got it right. But again, I'm not sure that that is cold calling because you are picking a student specifically because you know that they've then got the right answer. You've already done what cold calling is, is presuming to do by seeing the thinking process. And what I talked about before about using the mini whiteboards, that's exactly that process, but I didn't necessarily cold call afterwards. Um, what I might do is say, okay, fantastic. Does anybody want to share what they've written? Or I might, um, I might use that technique and I might come back and, and pick somebody who I know is the, has the right answer. But again, when I think of cold calling, that's not the kind of technique that I think of. When I think of cold calling, I think of that very pure, I've asked a question, I've given you time to think, and now I'm gonna choose you at random. So actually, and it's quite interesting that I've now done this five minutes before the show wraps up because I thought my conclusion was going to be that I still disliked cold calling. But actually, what I've just realised is that perhaps I'm too literal in my interpretation of cold calling. And I do find this quite a lot in my pedagogy. I do find that as teachers, we give names to these techniques, but we don't always name them something that is inclusive of everything that it involves. Because actually this rehearse and affirm is a technique that I use all the time. Asking students to build on what somebody else has said is a technique that I use all the time. I just personally would not have called that cold calling. Because again, to me, cold calling is picking my student at random or making it look like I'm picking my student at random. And, you know, perhaps, perhaps I've just spent the last hour completely misunderstanding what cold calling is. And perhaps you are all sitting there laughing at me 
and that's absolutely fine, uh, because I've come to something that you all knew right at the top of the show. But I do wonder, I do wonder how many teachers have the same thought process as me and take the concept of cold calling very literally and either don't realize that a lot of things that they are already doing are cold calling techniques. And so they will do like I do and say, no, I don't cold call and feel like because cold calling is in the zeitgeist right now, they're not doing it properly when in fact they are. So maybe it's a case of when we are reintroduced to these techniques because they're cycling back round, we need to make sure that we explore either ourselves or the inset leaders explore with us exactly what they mean so that we don't go away with any of these misconceptions. So there you go. We've just done a thought experiment where I started believing that cold calling was not a good pedagogy at all. And I've now ended, and you know, I will concede it was right at the last moment by thinking that actually I do cold call. And a lot of what I would have said are my preferred questioning techniques are in fact cold calling. That's just not what I would have called them because it doesn't fit what I think my definition of cold calling. Uh, it doesn't fit my definition of cold calling, what I thought cold calling was at the top of the show. Thankfully, I know that I'm not alone. Um, a lot of the comments that you have made during the show today have proven that lots of people consider cold calling to be the same thing that I do. And so maybe we need to think a little bit more carefully about how we label these principles. That is us for today. Thank you very much for listening. I very, very much appreciate those of you who have joined me for breakfast. I hope, as always, you have found it interesting to explore cold calling with me. Please do um, hang around for the rest of our shows this weekend. I will just remind you again that all shows scheduled for Monday are being suspended um, as a mark of respect for Her Majesty the Queen. And I hope you all have a great week. I will speak to you next week when, like I said earlier, we will be talking about planning, exercise books and learning journals. Let's see whether I can get our closing music working today. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.